0: So take it away, Peter. Take it away, Okay. will Um, do. We'll be hovering around in the background, enjoying (laughs) you going on about your cult stuff. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Leonie. Thank Um, you, Peter. Hello. How's it going? Uh, I honestly would wish that you were here. I've done the next best thing. I'm here drinking and you're at home, but I wish we could all be in the pub together. Um, But next best thing, I have friends around me and Adam as well. Um, So (laughs) we're having a good time here. Um, and what I want to do is I want to introduce the theme for the whole three days and then also talk about what we're going to be looking at today. And this is where I suppose it gets a bit heavy for a second. Um, I want to talk about the two types of trauma. There's the trauma that happens to us and there is the trauma that is us. Right? There's a trauma that happens to you as an individual and there's the trauma of being human, the trauma of living itself. And psychoanalysis looks primarily at the trauma that happens to you. And my main interest is the trauma that is you. But they both are completely intertwined. If you look at your own individual traumas, eventually you will come to the trauma that is life itself. And if you look at the trauma that is life itself, eventually you will come to your own individual traumas. So, what I want to do is, I want to start by looking at what trauma means and what it means for us individually. And then I want to connect it with, with the work of paro theology and with this idea of wake. Uh, to do that, I want to introduce a couple of concepts. I want to talk about what's called beta elements, alpha function, and primal agony. Right? So Wilfred Bion, a canonical psychoanalyst, he talks about beta elements. And a beta element is an experience that you have often when you're a child that is so significant you cannot symbolize it. It is too much. It's something that happens to you that you can't put into any subjective form. It's like a ship sunken in the depths of the ocean. The ship contains the water, but the water contains the ship. And the trauma is like the ocean. It is this saturated phenomenon. So perhaps... You had to nurse yourself when you were young. You didn't have containment. Something was happening that was, was something you couldn't understand. And you have a temper tantrum. You have this sense of just the world is collapsing. And you see this with children. When something happens, it's not just they're unhappy. It's that everything collapses in their life. So that's kind of like a beta element. And then Beyond talks about the alpha function. And the alpha function is what the parent does, if they're a good enough parent. They take all of this primal agony, this, this experience of the beta element, without anxiety, they bring it into themselves, and then they allow, help the child to symbolize it through music or song, through words. They translate the real of the experience, the real of the trauma, into the symbolic register, into language. And this happens to some extent for all of us, but sometimes it doesn't happen enough. And so as adults, sometimes people feel that there are sharks under the bed that are going to consume them, or a stranger outside the uh, building who is going to kill them, or they feel that they are going to have a breakup in their relationship that is absolutely going to devastate them. And often this happens at night. This is what Winnicott, another psychoanalyst, calls a primal agony. It's this experience you have of a complete too muchness, of an apocalyptic event that you feel is about to happen, right? There's not any stranger outside necessarily, but you hear a tap and you suddenly, without any doubt, feel that something is about to happen which is going to be absolutely devastating. Now, the good news is that that apocalyptic event is not going to happen. It already has. That's the idea of primal agony. You're afraid of an absolutely devastating trauma happening that has actually already happened in your life, but you have not been able to symbolize. You have not been able to put into language. Now, the reason why Beyond uses the term beta element An alpha function. So the alpha function is where the parent puts your trauma into language. It's because he says what the parent has to do is alphabeticize the experience. So to alphabeticize means to take the beta element and put it into the alphabet, put it into a symbolic world. And that's what happens in psychoanalysis. The analyst alphabeticizes your trauma. Helps you realize that this thing that you're terrified of happening did happen and it's okay. And all you have to do is find a way to put it into words. Now, this is what awake is. So, when someone dies, it's a traumatic event. And what we need to do is learn how to put that event into language in some way. And so, awake is a ritual, a liturgy, a vigil that helps you through music and words to translate the real into the symbolic. It's there to take this beta element and alphabeticize it, to put language to it. One way of understanding this is the term gone but not forgotten. So when someone dies, you say they are gone, but they are not forgotten. In other words, they are put into your memory. They are remembered. They are put into language. And so you carry them with you. If you don't do that, you enter into what can be called the realm of the forgotten, but not gone. And the realm of the forgotten, but not gone is the unconscious, where you don't put your trauma into language. And it remains within you in outbursts of anger, in terror at night that you will be consumed by the monsters under the bed, the murderer in the cupboard, or by the the aliens in your dreams. Gone, but not forgotten. Forgotten, but not gone. Now, I wanted to just say that to introduce the notion of the trauma that is us. One of the names for the trauma of being human is the death of God. And I'm gonna explain what that term means in the next 15 minutes. Um, one thing, by the way, that traditional theists and traditional atheists agree on is that this term is poetic at best. It's not a logical concept. So if you're a traditional theist, God, by definition, if you take Anselm, who gives you the best definition of God traditionally, is God is a necessarily existing being. If God exists, God has to exist. God cannot not exist. God is infinite and eternal. Therefore, God cannot die. And for the traditional atheist, God is an illusion. God is a fiction or a projection. And because God is not living, God cannot die. So what both agree on is that at best, it's poetry. It's a theopoetics to talk about the death of God. But what I want to say is it's not, it's a philosophical concept. It's a logical concept. And I'm going to give you the genealogy of it. And it starts, interestingly, in Judaism. And it starts with uh, the Apostle Paul, who is the first person, basically, to talk about the death of God. And not only does he talk about the death of God, he thinks it's central. He says, I preach Christ crucified. Now, that is a crazy, absurd idea we can't really get our heads around how absurd it is because God is the name for the absolute, the thing that is eternal, complete, necessary, and essential. And Paul says, this thing dies. So the concept starts in a religious environment But then nobody does anything with it for a long time. The first like five or seven centuries of Christianity, there's virtually no interest in the crucifixion. Early Christian art doesn't have any of it. Christian poetry doesn't have any of it. It's not very significant at all until Luther. And Luther makes it central to his thinking. So before humanism, uh, before Feuerbach, all of that, Luther says that every time we conceptualize God, we make something in our own image. God is always an idol. The God we believe in does not exist. And Luther said, the only type of God you can believe in is the God that died. Because he says it's so absurd, uh, nobody would come up with it. The idea that, that the eternal dies, that the most powerful thing in the world is powerless, that the, the the lightest thing in the world lies in darkness, this is a type of absurdity. And Luther didn't go very far with it. He just says you have to accept the craziness of it, enter into the absurdity of that idea, right? So then we've got Luther. Now I want to jump to Hegel. Hegel is the one who raises this notion to the level and the dignity of a philosophical concept. So for Hegel, in brief, (laughs) life is a series of contradictions that we're trying to overcome, right? So we come into being by trying to overcome some sort of problem or contradiction in our lives. And each time we try to overcome it, we end up with a deeper contradiction. We don't end up solving contradictions, but going further and further into them, just like an analysis. You say, listen, I can't sleep. I'm clenching my jaw at night. And then you see that as a contradiction. You want to shout at your partner, but you also want to keep quiet. And so the contradiction comes out in a sore jaw, right? Um, You're tired all the time, but uh, you're also uh, addicted to work, right? So this contradiction between wanting to work but wanting to protest because your parents wanted you to work, whatever it is, there is a congealment of contradiction, which is what a symptom is. You go to the analyst, you begin to work it out and you get over the first contradiction about wanting to shout at your partner and not shout at your partner, by realizing you wanted to shout at your parents and not shout at your parents. You resolve the first contradiction by going into a deeper contradiction. And the idea is you keep going, going deeper into contradiction until you realize that contradiction is at the very heart of reality itself, that you are a contradiction between life and death, between love and hate, between light and dark. And that every time you try to avoid the chaos and the cosmos of your life, you try to separate these out, you, you miss something. And for Hegel, God goes through this. The first concept of God, it comes about as the eternal, the essential, that thing that, that does not change. But then Hegel says that concept of God gradually over time goes through these various contradictions until the notion of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment when you realize that God is self-divided, that God is not at one with God. In philosophical terms, it means that reality is not at one with itself. Reality isn't one and it isn't two. Reality is not one. Now Hegel calls it absolute knowledge when you actually, not just hear that, me saying it doesn't do it, but when you climb the ladder, when you go through the work of following the contradictions, you eventually hit absolute knowledge, which is the knowledge that that reality is woven with chaos. The cosmos has chaos within it. Necessity has contingency within it. And he calls this within history. He calls it the end of history. He says that there's a point in the 19th century, um, very precise, that the 19th century is the point when historically we realize there is no undivided absolute. Now, there's a story I want to tell you very briefly about this guy called Seamus, who is a very pious man, very religious guy. right? And he loses his job during COVID. He loses his money. He's very worried about the future. And he prays to God and he says, God, listen, I really need some help. And he hears a voice from heaven and the voice from heaven says, Seamus, sell the few things you've got, get all the money together and fly to Vegas. So Seamus does it. He sells his house, sells his car, sells everything, gets the money together, flies to Vegas. He looks up to heaven, and says, what do you want me to do, God? And God says, I want you to go into the first casino you come to. And I want you to sit down at the poker table and put all your money in the first hand. Seamus is a pious man, goes into the hard rock cafe, sits down at the the table and gets dealt seven, two off. Terrible hand. And he's about to fold, but he hears the voice of God saying, don't fold, put all in. Seamus puts it all in. Somebody gets pear pair queens, somebody turns over ace king. He's like, two people go in, all in with him. He's very nervous, but then a seven hits on the flop. And then a two and another two gets a full house. He wins the money. He's like, I don't believe it. Here's a voice from heaven saying, now take all that money, go to the blackjack table, put it all in one hand of blackjack. Seamus does it, sits, put all the money on blackjack, gets dealt 16. Doesn't know what to do. He's going to stick. Here's a voice from God saying, hit. And so he hits, he gets a two. So he's on eighteen. He's going to stick. He hears a voice from God saying, hit again. He hits again. It's in the 19. He hears a voice from heaven saying, hit again. He gets, uh, gets a three, 19, 20, 21. Oh, no, two, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's bust. It he <laughs> He gets two. <laughs> and he wins blackjack, gets all the money. He says, I don't believe it. And then he hears a voice from heaven saying, I take all that money and put it on seven on roulette. So he's sweating. Like, he's sweating. But he takes all the money, puts it all on seven on roulette. Balls rolling, 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 bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. Sure enough, it hits seven. And he looks up to heaven and he says, I don't believe it. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, I don't believe it either. You're the luckiest motherfucker I've ever seen. <laughs> right? That is the truth of Hegel. Right? We think that God is unknown. The absolute has the answer. But Hegel says, no, the absolute isn't unknown. The absolute is unknowing. The absolute has this contingency built within it. And the end of history is the moment when we realize there's no leader, no powerful figure, nobody out there has all the answers. We are all in this together. Now, by the way, Hegel says basically that's, in in biology, it's called evolution. The non-at-oneness of the biological organism with itself creating life. In mathematics, incompleteness theorem, the idea that the axioms of mathematics are contradictory. So, when you try to use mathematics to explain everything, you find out that it falls into contradiction. Um, in psychoanalysis, it's called the unconscious. The consciousness is derailed by an unconscious. And in, in uh, politics, it's called democracy, the non at oneness of the social body with itself that creates um, uh, potentially, hopefully, a society. And in physics, is called uh, indeterminacy, the quantum dimension of reality. And it's not, it's not by a chance that Hegel is saying the birth of the modern world is the, uh, the birth of absolute knowledge, because in all of these scientific disciplines, we are encountering a non-oneness at at the heart of them. Right? That is the end of history. So the question is, well, what's the 20th century then? If the 19th century is the end of history, then what's left? And this is where Nietzsche comes in, because Nietzsche comes in and says the 20th century, he's at the dawn of the 20th century, but he's saying that the 20th century will be marked by our denial of the death of God. It will be marked by our fleeing from freedom, from our free, fleeing from the idea that there is a non-divided reality, fleeing from the idea that we have to decide ourselves Right? That we have to, which is what anxiety is. That we don't know what we have to do. We have to make these decisions without anybody, no leader telling us what the answer is. That we will find this burden too much to bear. And that's why he tells the parable of the death of God. In the parable of the death of God, he's not talking to people who believe in God. He's talking to people who don't. The elites, the humanists, the scientists. He says God is dead and you don't know it. You think you know it but you don't realize it. You haven't experienced it existentially at the heart of reality. So you will fall for new totalitarian leaders. You will fall for new age mysticisms. You will fall for for these ideas of wholeness and completeness. And by the way, the, the secular version of that is the commodity, commodity satisfaction. There is a commodity out there that will fix me, that will make me feel great if I earn enough money, if I have enough things. That's just the secular form of wholeness and completeness. Whether it's psychedelic enlightenment, commodity satisfaction, uh, sexual uh, enlightenment, all of these things are attempts to flee from our freedom. This is what existentialism is in a nutshell. And so finally, what comes after Nietzsche is Freud, Freud and Lacan. Psychoanalysis is the technology that is designed to help you confront the primal agony of the death of God, to alphabetize that experience. And that's what parotheology is. And that's what wake is. Wake is the alphabetizing of the trauma of the divided nature of reality itself, that we are condemned to freedom, that we have to decide for ourselves that we can't put this onto somebody else, that reality itself is divided.